Daddy Squared Pride Special 2020 is sponsored by Mark Surrey, co-founder and medical director of the Southern California Reproductive Center. Dr. Surrey is a strong ally to the LGBTQ community, specializing in helping gay men build their families. Find more info on daddysqr.com slash SCRC. Daddy Squared, the gay dad podcast with Alex Megan. Welcome to Daddy Squared Podcast. We're here to celebrate Pride, and this year we celebrate Pride in a slightly different way. Slightly. <laughs> I'm Jan. I'm Alex. And we have uh, two guests with us today, uh, Reverend Alfreda, Frida Lenoir, an inspirational speaker. Hi. Hi. Good morning. And Tom Peer, he's a therapist and an adoptive dad. Hi. Hi. Hi there, how are you? <laughs> yes, now, we're, <laughs> now we can hear you. Uh, before we go around and, and uh, ask you guys to uh, introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your background, we want to jump right in with a question. And that is, what do you think that we can teach our children um, and the children around us about hatred and differences and what that means at the various ages that, uh, that it applies? Wow, that's uh, that's really kind of a loaded question. Um, I remember um, I'm, I'm a lesbian, and uh, I have two children. And I remember coming out to my children, and especially my daughter, I can remember her her difficulty in how to introduce me to her friends. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, because, you know, she had, of course, so much respect for me, and she loved me, and of course, she wanted all her friends to love me and to get to know me, and she didn't want them to judge me first by finding out that I was a lesbian before they got to know me, and so that difficulty and that struggle of, of, of love and acceptance and, you know, her, her trying to create, and so I, I can remember her, um, her best friend and, and loving her best friend and then having the courage to tell her friend that, you know, her mom is a lesbian. And, of course, her friend was like, stop lying. You're, no, I know your mom. She's not a lesbian. And my daughter was like, no, no, she really is a lesbian, right? And so I just remember that struggle with her. Um, being, How old was she? At that particular time, she had to be, I, I would say, around 12. Oh, okay. that's, you know. a, that's, a, that's a steep thing for a 12-year-old to handle talking to her friends. Yes, it was very, very, very heavy for her with everything else that she was going through, the transition of going to high school or, or middle school and just whatever else that, you know, children that age go through. Right. Um, but, but her foundation, you know, um, I had created a foundation of being able to be accepting of other people even if they didn't look like you or whatever their situation may be. And so for me, uh, I think what was so important in that situation was that I created a village, that there was a village that, that I had created that would sustain and allow her to see other people from many different expressions and walks of life. 
So I believe that gave her the courage. So you had those people in her life all the time as she was growing up, friends, uh, whatever. Absolutely. I was very fortunate that when I came out, you know, uh, I was married. I was married and I had two kids and, you know, I was living on top of an anthill, not a real hill, but an anthill. But I had all of the trappings of what people might say is a successful, beautiful marriage and the two kids and the two dogs. And of course, right in the midst of my marriage, my sexuality kept peeping, kept coming up. And so the day came, I became very suicidal and I went through all of that. And so once I came to grips with this is just who I am and I can no longer live this life that's not me, you know, then my my greatest fear was telling to telling this to my children. And and so once I was able and I had the courage to begin to have that conversation with them and to um, be able to uh, feel their pain and their uncertainty because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, this is this mom that you've seen in one way all of your entire life. And all of it, I'm telling you now that um, uh, that that's not true for me anymore. And so it was very, very difficult. And so I was very fortunate that when I came out a, a, a year or so after I came out, I was able to find a village, a community that I could I could bring my children to and my children would be exposed Mm-hmm. Did you do that on purpose? Or did you say to yourself early on in your in your life as a mom, you know what, I need to make sure that there is a diverse group around my children? Or did it just happen because, I don't know, that's where you were? And- Absolutely not. That was not in my four thinking or anything that I'm going to find a community or I'm going to get this, you know, this support. The community came out of my need. Of, of discovering that, okay, now I'm a lesbian, what does that look like? And of course, going through some of the things that we go through when we come out as our family rejects us or our family has an opinion, whether it's right or wrong, or if they're going to be supportive or, or not. And so um, on my journey of finding uh, something that would really support who I am or I was at that particular time, out of that need, the village was created. So, Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting. So, I I, I do have a, a bias towards the LGBT community. I just think we're better than everybody else. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's it's something I don't generally talk about in broadcast, but here we are. Um, but it's interesting because what we just heard seems to argue that as a parent. Being gay gives you something. Being part of the LGBT community gives you something, which is a perspective from the outset on being different yourself mm-hmm. before you even bring children into the mm-hmm. world. So you have mm-hmm. kids who are how old? I have a daughter who is eight and a son who's six. Right. And they arrived in our lives. I'm, I'm married uh, 28 years with my husband, 29 coming up. Wow. And, um, Congratulations. Yeah, really. Thank you. And they arrived with us when they were three and a half and just about one year old. So um, I was listening and, and hearing the, the coming out story differently because they, the foundation for us was bringing them into a loving family and they didn't know any difference. Right. So even, even they're, they're um, biracial, so they're half Mexican, half black, mm-hmm. which also means a fair amount of European descent in their 
genetics as well. Um, and so they, they didn't know anything differently, really, as far as having two same-sex parents. Are they being, siblings? They are. Okay. Yeah, in more ways than one now. <laughs> uh, yes, so genetically, yes, and then um, b by virtue of adoption with us. So they, we had to, first of all, teach them they were loved and develop the trust, particularly with our daughter who's older. She's three and a half yeah. and had, came with her own set of views and opinions on the world and had some defenses, understandably. And she also, well, so once they understood they were loved and in a home where they belonged, then from there, understanding, you know, the, the color of skin, awareness of that doesn't come from birth. It, they, they grow into that. So in preschool was the first time they're around other children. So they had, they, we're, we live in South Los Angeles, Lumert Park specifically. So they're around black and brown kids all the time. And we, I hope we can talk about that because we did that on purpose. And they had all women of color as teachers. So they were surrounded by people who looked like them. Uh, so they, were com they developed a comfort in that. But then we started talking about how my skin, which is very white, um, looks different from theirs. And so we came to that difference. At what age did you talk about this? I, you know, it, I think it just, I can't, it wasn't anything deliberate. I think maybe five when they're in, when they're in school settings, because that's when differences are often pointed out by other kids or teachers or whatever. And they do a good job of reading books that have to do with difference and things like that in school. Um, but then understanding they knew they were loved by two dads at home, but not knowing that if they say that out in the world, that, that people might not like that, right? So it's interesting to be out in public with them and they go, Daddy, Papa, And then people look, and you and they, you see the look in their eyes, like, oh, those two brown kids have those two white dads. Right. All this stuff is happening in their brains to make sense of that. The kids don't know that. They're right. just yelling, Daddy and Papa. Yeah, I mean, you did the full Monty. I mean, you know, white parents, black kids, you're gay. I mean, you throw in yeah. a few other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I am actually really curious about the question of when... So our children are, we have twin four-year-old boys and um, who are white. Uh, and we, I have talked to them many times uh, about, you know, differences and how people look different. And, you know, I have brown eyes and my husband has green eyes and uh, greenish, whatever they are, not brown After eyes. After all this time, you still don't know. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and we talk about those differences in a way that is designed to make it feel like, well, of course there are all of these differences. Mm -hmm. Of course, you see that, that boy over there, he has very dark brown skin, right? Uh, and you have brown eyes and, you know, blah, 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 right? So that feels good to me. Mm -hmm. What it isn't is a discussion of the fact that in the world that can be a problem. Right. And I think my question for both of you is, When do you introduce the bad side? The good side feels easy. It's like, here, look at all of these people. Everybody's purple and everybody's black and everybody, you know. But at a certain point, they have to understand you may not have it so easy because you're a Jew mm -hmm. or because mm -hmm. your parents are gay or whatever. So, so when do you start that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I... What comes to mind is how I've always thought about coming out not as one event, 
like you come out and then the whole world knows you come out hundreds and hundreds of times over years and years and years. So for me, these are constant smaller discussions over time when they're receptive, when the mood strikes, when you're in the car, whatever, daddy, why, you know, tell me about, I remember they said, why do we say black when really it's just dark brown, <laughs> yeah. right? And so then I have to go, why do we say black? Right. And why do we say black and brown bodies? And why do we say, you know, so there's all that, it's it's just ongoing. Right. So you're, you're getting a new question and answering it in a new way. And then it comes back and like, I mean, things like hair. I, I have COVID hair right now, really short hair, but my, when I have longer hair, it's straight and blonde. And my husband's is very straight. And there's this kinky, kinky. Mm-hmm. And just, just talking about how, why we have different hair, why their hair looks like their moms right. and their brothers. They have a brother out there in the world too. And why is that? And why does it not look like ours? And, and you know, hair's not potentially that big of a problem but in some cases it can be something kids make fun of too right. so being just helping them oh be hair can definitely yeah, be well, an right, issue right. so so let me identify my straight white blonde hair privilege exactly exactly uh, you know uh, so there's a couple of things too that, that that has been said one is um the power of uh when you are fortunate enough to have a a a village type setting simply because I know what made my children comfortable was that they were not the only children or the only people that their mom was gay. That, that, you know, so they, they begin to see other families and they go, oh, wow, wait a minute, this is not just an isolated or it's not just my mom, but they, they got, they begin to see others. And, and on the, on the question of like, when do you, when do you come out or when do you say whatever you say? Absolutely. You come out all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll be 65 and I'm, I'm study coming out. Right. You know, uh, I have grandchildren that, you know, that were born into the situation where they had two grandmas and all that good stuff. And so, yeah, it was, it, it seemed very normal for them. Uh, and, and, but my, my children or my daughter, uh, she has definitely taught her, her grand, I mean, my grandson to be a critical thinker. And so he doesn't just take anything for granted if it's something that he doesn't understand. But, um, also, you, you come out when, when a, a lot of times when the questions are being asked. Mm-hmm. That, to me, because at that point, they, they are open and they are comfortable enough and maybe they, their insight is great enough for them to kind of understand because there's a lot of things that we don't even understand about ourselves as, you know, why, well, why are you gay? I don't know why I, I am. I just, I, I just am. And so I can remember my daughter. I had always said to myself when the time came and she asked whatever particular question that she was going to ask, I just wanted to make sure. And I was hoping that I would have the courage at that particular time to be able to be as honest as I possibly could be. Because as parents, you always have the fear of that. You don't want, you, you don't want to be the person to hurt your children and that was really my fear that now you know I'm supposed to be the protector I'm supposed to be the one the nurturer I'm supposed to be the one that has you know at least some insight and now all of a sudden I'm in this position that I might now say something that will crush them or hurt them and that's a really hell of a position to be in you know the the hidden motivation behind this podcast is entirely to help to get other people to help us raise our children. So, <laughs> in that vein, um, we're white 
we have two white kids biologically uh, related to us through in, in vitro fertilization. And we live in West Hollywood, which is um, somewhat multi-race, but pretty white. Um, and these days, relatively affluent. And I think my challenge is this. I feel really good about what we've done with our kids to raise them understanding that even at four, understanding that there's difference and that and the difference is fine and all that. Here's my problem. They're not going to have a reason to ask why it's bad to be different and why different people are treated badly anytime soon. They go to a school which is so damn multicultural you want to barf, right? They they live in a neighborhood where there are rainbows all over the place. And the problem I guess I have, the fear that I have is what if my children are growing up incredibly naive and thinking, well, what? Everybody loves everybody. On one hand, I love that they have that in their hearts. On the other hand, what if I'm setting them up for a terrible shock when they recognize that a lot of the world isn't that way. You know, it's, it's, it's ironic. Uh, my daughter and I just had the conversation because her son is 11 years old and he'll be 12 years old. And, of course, how protective that she's kind of been in, you know, raising him and having the conversations. But now the time is coming for her to have that conversation about being black in America. What is that going to be like? And, and, and it's breaking her heart. It's breaking her heart that the child that she loved, that she has, that she's nurtured, all of a sudden now she's got to bring this layer. She's got to bring this layer of, of, of information to kind of explain to him that you're going to have to walk through life just a little bit different. The talk. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, um, you know, when that, when, as that time is happening and, and she's a professor. She, and she's never had that talk before the 12 year old she, starts asking she's questions. She sort of had the talk, but not the talk, not the one that's maybe piercing, not the one that takes the innocence away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about when yeah. the innocence, you know, when, you know, like I remember in, in the um, movie Color Purple, it says when uh, Whoopi said, you know, uh, you got to beat her mm -hmm. and, and, and you got yes, oh, I see. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I yes, see. Yeah, that part, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, because sometimes, you know, that difficult of of the one that you love, that you want life to be amazing for, that you do whatever you can do, you sacrifice, you whatever. But in reality, when reality really hits and the world is what it is, and you have to have that conversation. Right. And it's so important, I think, and you, you know, we have the, the psychiatrist here, the therapist here, but to me it's just so important that when we have these conversations with our kids, it's all about having that balance to make sure that we have the conversation but we also can counter the conversation with, you know, there are good things in the world sure. also. And exposure. You cannot have your child in a bubble. Mm -hmm. You have to pop that bubble. And what but you don't just mean exposure to people who are different. You mean exposure to the fact that there's bad shit there. Exactly. And, and what and what beautiful way to be able to do that when they are in a supportive, loving environment. Yeah. The, the, I'm going to just share this weekend. So the 
there's so much coverage of the George Floyd protests on the news, and we've pretty pretty freely let our kids watch, and they come in and watch, and then they leave, and they get, they're getting doses of it. So it's about safe doses, and I think in a sense, why did the police officer do that? Why would somebody hate him? Why would that happen? Um, and so, then some of the question about the talk. So my son is six, and I get texts from friends who say, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I'm thinking, yeah, uh, you can't, because I could never could either. So he, we on Saturday, he, he and I had a long time. We were cooking. He wanted to make something on the stove, and we were just going along. And, and then I was listening to something the night before on transracial adoption. And so I said to him, what would happen if a police officer came up to you? And he said, I don't know. And, he said, and I said, well, well, how might you interact? And he said, I might tell him a joke. I'm like, well, that's a good start. And maybe put your hands up to tell the joke up here so, you, so they see where your hands are. Because I'm thinking of Tamir Rice, only 12, and he pulled a, a toy gun out of his hand pocket Ooh. at 12 and gets yeah. shot within 15 seconds But when the police arrive. And then I said, um, and if you're wearing a hoodie, what do you do? And he said, oh, I dropped the hoodie for sure. Like, wow. And he's six, and he knows that. Wow. But it, And it's not like... I'm saying because you're going to get killed. I'm just saying it's like I used to have to take my hat off when we went into school or into church. That's just what you do. So to, for me, it's early enough that we're just that's just what you do. Well, that's but so that's protection, and I'm all mm-hmm. for it, of course. Um, but I guess my question is: Does he understand that there are bad? cops meaning does he understand that there are people out there who aren't going to like him he's six that there are people out there who aren't going to like him before they know him because he's black it seems so early for him to know yeah i don't think i don't think he would be i don't think he would articulate it that way at all but i do think he would have some ingrained behaviors that he would do right making eye contact saying hello dropping the hoodie keeping his hands up that are that are manners but also I'm really really important for him as a brown boy my son um he's uh 46 now I know I look good don't know you do you do I want to know who your surgeon is no I was like I look like he's getting older and I'm just standing still you know and 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 so I have experienced you know I've experienced the gangs I've experienced you know, the police um, interacting with my son and my son interacting with the police. I've experienced, you know, you know, having that that gut wrenching conversation with him coming up of, you know, what to do and what not to do, at least what I feel like you should do. And his father, you know, saying, you know, um, what how to act, you know, and and the why. Well, why should I act that way? You know, Mom, that's just not fair. And having to say it's not about being fair, it's about being alive. Mm-hmm. And so these are steps toward being alive and, 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 you know, and my son, you know, being ingrained with his own sense of pride and, you know, nobody's going to and I was, and trying to, and it, it is sad because, in, in one sense, you're breaking him down. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. Gay parents, uh, all of whom have successfully come 
out of the closet 16 or 17 times. Yeah. And um, and here we are giving advice. By the way, not we, because we don't really have particularly that issue. But here you are having to give guidance to your kids that does not necessarily feel all that comfortable. I mean, making eye contact seems like something you should always do. But take your hoodie off? Like, what? What? You know, well, and, make yeah. sure no. your hands are exposed. Right. That's right. And know? none of that is stuff I had to do other than the manners part. Right. That, so as a white guy, I didn't have to learn that. Exactly. And, and my son said to me, Mom, we can we walk out the same front door and I see it one way and you see it yeah. totally different. The world that I live in versus the world that you live in, mm-hmm. it's like night and day. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tom, uh, you mentioned that uh, you were looking to other, what it was, podcast that you were hearing about uh, intersectional? About transracial adoption. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you said, and, and previously you also mentioned that, uh, you know, your kid asked you a question and you're like, what? Mm-hmm. Where does it come from? Mm-hmm. So, I want to know how do you educate yourself? Mm-hmm. What do you do? It seems like you, it's a lot of work of, like, so the kids ask a question or you want to be prepared. What do you do? Yeah. That's a great question. I, Um, have very strongly set my sights on educating myself. I listen to a lot of adopted voices. Adult adoptees telling their stories is the most important oh, way that I yeah. learn because what they, what they can say was helpful to them. What they, a lot of um, Korean adopted people were, didn't really even realize they were Asian or Korean until... Like puberty or they you know like they tell stories of this one day I looked in the mirror and I realized holy crap I don't look like the rest of the McGonagall's or whatever mm-hmm. and and they have this coming out of the fog of sense and I'm like okay well we won't have that you know coming out of that but understanding it from the beginning so listening to those voices centering voices of people who are transracial adopted mm-hmm. persons and um, you know my profession I'm a licensed adult psychotherapist in California and, and I do that through being a social worker. So the other point of view that I ha- come to the world with is one about social justice and, and have studied since high school really how to be of service and how to know people and human behavior and be part of healing people's lives who are hurt and mitigating problems in the world. So that's also just part of who, who we are as a couple as well. You know, speaking of, speaking of healing the world and fixing the world, so uh, I and Whitney Houston believe that children are the future. Um, sorry, <laughs> we can cut that. That was good. Um, uh, uh, but, but, you know, so w- one of the challenges that I feel that I have is, okay, not only do I want to make sure that I've raised my children to be good and kind and not prejudiced, you know, bigoted bastards, right? But I also want to give them the tools to fix the world mm-hmm. right now. All right. So by example is a great thing. The fact that they're not, you know, the racist, racist, prejudiced bastards is a great first step. But I do wonder there, whether there are things that I can be teaching my kids now now at this age that will have an impact on other kids or other adults that are around them mm-hmm. how can they become emissaries and when does that start mm-hmm. you know the, the thing that's so important uh, with my children is that they were exposed and they were volunteers I would have them 
to volunteer with different organizations with the things that you know I I believed in or stood for, um, and so so I I in social justice I came from the social justice background, also dealing with the nonprofit I was the COO of Minority AIDS Project, and so when AIDS first hit, you know we were out there and we created an agency for people of color, by people of color. So for me, it was very important that my children were exposed to seeing people of color mm. being in charge, you know, making things happen, being compassionate, going out and, and talking. And so I remember when we were getting this really big check from the Lakers, from Magic Johnson, right? And so uh, it, in my mind, I said, you know what? I want my daughter to be the one to go out and accept it and so she walked out on the little court and whatever and they had to check that was court bigger than she was and <laughs> yeah try to cash those exactly and so and she walked up to the microphone and she said on behalf of children and parents living with HIV we want to thank you so it was the exposure that I gave and how that made her feel that she was in a community that was doing something that could help other people so to me that exposure is 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 so important that they see that there is there is a need and ever how small it is this is something that we can do together that makes them begin to have that frame of thought, that point of view. And so it didn't surprise me that when she grew up, she decided to be uh, a professor of sociology uh, to go out and to educate because it's on mm -hmm. the same line that she was exposed to. We've been in community for like 35 years. It's right. kind of all she knows. Mm -hmm. So right. it's very important. Yeah, well, uh, that was great to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think about the, the ways, the everyday ways that we do that noticing they are, I don't know, our kids have really compassionate hearts naturally too. So we capitalize on that. They see homeless people and they want to go and give them money. My mom sent $20 in a, in a, whatever it was, Valentine's day card or something. And my daughter was standing in the parking lot and she, she just gave it away to, you know, a homeless person because oh, she's just yes, generous of heart. Yes. Uh, so we capitalize on that and talking about what it feels like to, walk past or step over somebody, you know, like, this is hard. It, they, we went to the dentist right before COVID hit. We went to the dentist that Saturday and they stepped, we had to like park and basically step over a person. And I bent over and checked to make sure he was breathing. Right. And they're like, what are you doing? And I said, we're making sure, first of all, that he's alive. And if he weren't, we would attend to that. And if he were struggling, we would tend to that. But since he's here, and we just talked about what it felt like. We didn't even have to do anything in that moment, but to talk about what it felt like in their hearts to see somebody hurting like that. They go to a school, um, Citizens of the World, that is a, a lot about uh, restorative justice. So my son's kind of a wiggly kindergartner, and if he gets in trouble and pours milk in somebody else's hat, he's got a Clean up the table. Wait, he poured milk into somebody else's hat. <laughs> oh, that's only the that's only the beginning. It's kind of it's kind of poetic. You got to give him some credit. I it's nice. It his milk and the other guy's hat, or the other way around. But <laughs> please continue. So sorry. There's just there's something they do that's really important about restorative justice. Not that they force an apology, but that they say this caused someone else a problem. This hat's a mess. The floor is a mess, and. While we're talking about it, we're going to clean it up and other things like that. So there's a 
notion around uh, that the things they do that are just, you know, funny things. He's a hilarious kid, <laughs> but they get him in trouble. And right. so then to make up for that, there's a restorative justice kind of notion to that. And we don't call it that. I mean, it, maybe they do at school, but we just say, what are we going to do to make up for this? Right. Yeah. You know, you know it's, I'm sorry, but no, no. it's very important, too, because sometimes, you know, some of us, you know, we're we're kind of in a position where we can do all that. But, you know, we let's a, at least look at like just everyday parents that don't have anything. They're not exposed to anything. They don't have a village. They don't have, you know, a, a, a great school to send their kids to, you know. Those sometimes are, are are the kids that don't get the information, and so what they do is they just kind of pass down those same generational bad, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, habits, and 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 so you know uh, I know a lot of times. For us, uh, what we've done sometimes is we've just created just support circles. You know, uh, we have this circle that's called um, Black Women Support Circles. And so we've drawn all these black women from just all over, from many different expressions and walks of life, just to bring them in, just to be able to expose them to what is parenting skills. You know, like when I had my first child, I didn't have any parenting skills. All I had was, I know this is what happened to me that I didn't like, and so I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to try that. But by the time I had my second child, because they are nine years apart, by that time I had kind of, you know, been exposed and educated myself and taken a few parenting classes. That's that's why you shouldn't have twins, because the problem is <laughs> we blew it once and we're done. That's it. Yes. So, yes. you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I want to talk for a minute about uh, the role of entertainment in changing hearts and in diversity and exposure and visibility. And for that, we have Silky Nutmeg Ganage, who did very well on the last season of RuPaul's Drag Race. Hello, Silky. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Are you in uh, Mississippi, right? I am in Mississippi. We want to join you, like have you in in the conversation with us. And we wanted to ask you, what do you think is the role of entertainment to change hearts and minds, especially in children? I, I think that um, what entertainment has done historically has been in the forefront of making change. And if you go back in history, when it came of making awareness to different issues as of like HIV, as of just basic human rights, civil rights, um, advocates for the LGBT community, drag queens have been at the face of that. Um, Stone Rome riots started by trans women, you know? I think that our children need to lay off the video games, lay off um, television, and do what I had to do in my childhood, and that was just simply read and make themselves aware. And that takes more than just the children at this point. It takes you know, concerned parents um, because racism is taught by parents. Um, Children don't know what racism is until, you know, the parents teach that. So it takes an effort from children, um, from the parents, and it takes looking what entertainers have done throughout the span of history. What do you do with, so it's interesting what you're saying about reading, I guess. uh, My my question would be, we have um, 
tremendous access to our kids' minds through television and whatever is replacing television now, like YouTube, et cetera, and video games. Do you think that television and video games and all that kind of stuff don't have a a job that they can do and that it's only going to come out of books? I grew up reading a lot. Um, And still to this day, even when I was just a college recruiter right before being on RuPaul's Drag Race, I would tell kids all the time, it's not about teaching young kids now. It's about you. I can not tell you how many kids that I have in my inbox. I want to come out. I think I'm gay. I need to be exposed to more. I live in Tennessee. I live in Alabama. Don't know what to do. Those are the kids that need to be reached upon. And my uh, my response to that always is, you know what, and, and this, what the way I did my life, um, because I didn't know if my family was going to accept me or not. And I'm very fortunate to have a accepting family, but I didn't come out at a very young age because I didn't know because I was raised in a church. So one of the things that I tell kids all the time is if you want to go live your life, go to college. You can go to a school far away from home (laughs) and live a life that you want to live far away from home and come back home during the holidays and terrorize your family. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, they're not accepting. You can go back to college and live your life, create new friends, create new families, because that was what gay families were all about. And still to this day, joining the gay family, that's what it's about. It's not really about the entertainment when we have these drag families. And I know the Davenports is a huge family. And uh, Kalexis Davenport, who started that family, did an interview a couple of weeks back where she said, yes, I have my gay, my drag children. But she's like, I never had kids of my own and I wanted to teach them life lessons. And I think that's what it's really about. So if you're out there and you're listening to this, um, read, go to college, get a degree. Um, I got $90,000 in student loans and I don't ever plan on paying them back. So <laughs> that's their problem. Um, go to college and do that, you know, and I'm grateful that I did that. And, you know, you know something that the fact that you said that the, yeah. there are, um, emails on, on your inbox from, from kids, I was wondering about your, like, going to RuPaul's Drag Race, was that, you, you went there knowing that uh, by being famous or by, by being on this kind of show will result in you being someone that they can look up to and they can confide to and you can help? I mean, See, this, this is the tricky thing about it because when we, filmed it, when we filmed that TV show, first of all, from the very beginning, that was my first audition tape, first time auditioning for RuPaul's Drag Race when I got on. And when I auditioned, I auditioned because at that point of life, when I had moved to Chicago, um, what I've moved there for didn't work out. So I was like, you know what? Let me just audition for RuPaul's Drag Race. Why not? Mm-hmm. It ended up getting on the show. Um, so I never even thought about perspective or really the point of how I could impact others. Right. Um, and the unfortunate thing of just how I am about life, when I was filming the show, I talked about education a lot. I talked about, um, you know, civil rights, human rights a lot. Unfortunately, none of that was shown because, you know, you have 48 hours of filming that has to be compressed into one hour. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't think about that. And I didn't think that the stories that I tell 
that I told on the show, I went to the show just thinking about entertainment. It wasn't until after the show when it started to air and people were seeing more than just entertainment that it actually made me think about that more. And that's when, after filming the show, when I, I started to be more conscious of that I'm a role model because I didn't even realize that people looked at me as a role model just from going on that show until DragCon when I had a million and one kids and their parents come into my booth. Mm -hmm. So um, if I ever to get on All Stars uh, one day, um, if I'm ever asked, you know, that's something that I think about more. But going into the show, I didn't think about that. So it took you by surprise the first the first time that a kid reach, reached out to you and say... Um, Absolutely. Right. So Absolutely. I it took me by surprise when, when kids reach out to me. Because first of all, you know, um, I guess I, I'm from Mississippi and I'm old school. So old school being... You know, I would have never thought as a kid to reach out to this person or that person. Mm -hmm. Never as a kid would I've, would I've ever thought about that. Or I never would even thought that my situation would have been very similar to other kids. And I guess that's where the fact that I was a little naive going on to the show right. um, on the power that I had or the effect that I had on other people. I, I just didn't understand that. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about that. How was it like uh, growing up? in Mississippi, like you did, um, you, you were in the closet, obviously. I was in the closet, but I wouldn't say in the closet. I would, cause I don't think that's a fair thing to say. My, my thought process as a kid growing up, growing up was what's understood needs no explanation. Hmm. And the same, like, this is so crazy because I went back to my family reunion last Labor Day and my family was just like, we have a celebrity. <laughs> and it's so crazy because the world gets to see what we've seen um, all of Silky's entire life. And I've been the same person you saw on TV. I've been fun and goofy my entire life. Um, and I've always had fun. And I, I didn't realize, you know, I guess I knew what gay was. But um, I just never emphasized it and um i grew up with a family that loves me a family that didn't quite understand i can admit that um because my mother did my mother's my biggest cheerleader now but she didn't quite understand and i, I guess it's a thing with different cultures like when you're southern or if you're black we've been oppressed our entire lives sometimes oppressed people don't know how to just support other people mm -hmm. and so growing up I didn't have anyone to talk to about being gay or I knew that I was gay but in my mind sure I'm gonna live out these last couple of years and I had help the help was Hurricane Katrina I went through Hurricane Katrina we lived in a FEMA trailer the focus wasn't on me it was on rebuilding the house um, at that time. So I was just like, I'm trying to just make it to college. And I went to college in Indiana, 13 hours away from home. <laughs> so like, it, it was crazy because during that time, it was, wasn't until like 2008 that YouTube had just started to like develop and become popular, you know? So like, it wasn't, it's crazy because I guess I, I didn't grow up in the age of social media like kids do today. I'm just 30 years old and 
technology has changed immensely throughout those years. But I grew up in a happy family, um, a Christian-based family. I've been a minister of music a part of my life where I played piano, sang, and directed the choir. Um, I hope to one day go back to that. Um, as a job, you know, once I slow down doing drag a little bit more and start my own family, but that's how I was raised. And I'm very happy and proud of the way I was raised. Was it perfect? No, but I'm very grateful that my family throughout the years have loved and supported me and got to know who I was. So my advice to anybody listening to this portion right now is to remember to be the individual. Your family just want to make sure that you are the individual they raised. And I am that. Hmm. I still have all my morals, my values. Do I cuss a little bit too much? Yes, but so do my mother. And <laughs> By the way, this, and, is, this is an explicit lyrics podcast, so you can let fly <laughs> if you want to. Um, I, I want to ask you this, this question about, uh, about the overlap of, I don't know, um, about who you are. So, especially at this time, you're, as you said, you're gay and you're black. Um, do you feel that the two communities that you intersect with, at least those two, you probably intersect with a bunch of others too, um, that they communicate with each other in a way that is meaningful and supportive? And do you think that you have a, a role in acting as that kind of bridge? I don't think that they um, communicate with each other because, again, how could you expect oppressed people to talk to another oppressed person? You know, like, mm -hmm. um, but I do at this point in my life want to serve as the bridge to that gap. Um, because, for example, this is something small to many people, but it's huge to me. Uh, my grandmother owned a ranch in Lexington, Mississippi, small country town where the ranch is off a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. And we have our family reunions there. And I go every year and we have these contests where there are card playing, um, cake baking contests. And this year for my family reunion, they added a lip sync for your life competition. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I, I was sitting there just thinking, like, looking like, wow, this don't mean anything to no one else. But I'm on a dirt road with my family, um, and I won't say that my family has been homophobic or anything, but we just didn't talk about it because I guess we didn't have a lot of people that were out or right. thought that it was important until my run on RuPaul's Drag Race. But um, it's about making people feel comfortable. And I think that the more people are out, um, the more people talk about you know, their experiences and the more people, you know, say how they make them feel because, you know, even as gay people, oppressed people have mental health issues and it's because we try to hold things in instead of talking about it. And I'm glad that like my family, are starting to get to that point where we're addressing things. And even like in my adult life, I'm addressing things that happened in my childhood that uh, bothered me. And, you know, sometimes give me a little PTSD. Um, but now they're open to the conversations and they're willing to make the change. So I think I'm just serving as um, the bridge to gap these communities. Um, in college, I always said I was part of the gay community 
the black community and the Christian community. And those are three communities that don't understand each other because even like, you know, being black and Christian, black Christians feel how they feel on many different levels. And then you add like the whole gay part of it, then that blows it up a little bit more, you know? So I'm just going to be there and I'm going to go to church and I, I think it's so liberating that I go to my home church here in Mississippi, which is not open right now because of the virus. But I would go, I would go back home because I would, when I'm out on the road traveling, I would try to go back home as often as possible, um, even though I live in LA now, to you know visit my family. And I would go on Sunday morning. They would say, "Well, brother uh, Ouija, because my nickname was Ouija growing up. Well, brother Ouija, come on up here and give us a song." And I would go up there with my my full set of nails. And I would sing, and I would twirl, and I would thank God just to let them know that I know that I was a little extra just to prove a point. But at the same time, I go and I I have to show them that this is me, and this is my life, and you can accept it or not. And I'm grateful that they've been accepted as far. That's amazing. That's that is am- amazing. Thank you so much. Silky, for thank you so much. Us. And I want to tell you that the uh, visibility of people. Like you that are so talented it's so it's so great and I'm proud that I have like I have somebody like you to show to my kids um, as they grow up so really thank you for everything that you do even if it's just entertainment I think that for many people it's it's more than that agreed oh thank you I'm, I'm learning it now and that's what I'm trying to do more and be more and to you know show that love because you Love is unconditional, and unfortunately, older, older generations and, you know, oppressed people and black people don't know what unconditional love is like. And you see that in the news now where Dwayne Wade is being drugged, you know, for accepting his daughter Zara, you know? So it's just got to get to a point where we're teaching our children unconditional love and showing them what that truly looks like. Here, here. Okay, again, thanks so much, and have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Daddy Squared, Pride episode 2020. We're here, Alex and Jan, with Reverend Frida Lenoir and therapist and adoptive dad, Thomas Peer. Um, You know, everyone in in this studio right now has um, one or more um, category that they belong to that is considered an oppressed minority, right? But that minority overlap doesn't always work, by which I mean my homosexuality or my Judaism does not necessarily give me a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card with my black friends, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't mean... Oh, you get it because you're gay and you're a Jew, right? And the same thing can be said. I can't necessarily say to my black friends, well, you know, you get Jewish oppression because you're black, right? So the question is, though, what are we doing and what can we do with our children to try to erase some of those lines where we do embrace across these groups and say, wait a minute, we have a lot to learn from each other and we can support each other. You don't, you're not excluded because you have not been through it. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? How do you mm-hmm. open that up when sometimes you don't even feel it yourself? You don't really feel like that other group has 
you know, the right to be involved. What What's the secret? Because to me, that is a great next generational achievement if we can have these groups, all of whom overlap in so many ways, recognize that they share these challenges. I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, one thing is, is I have a lot of friends asking like, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, the first thing is to, to shut up and listen. So there's, there's just not enough listening happening. Um, that, that's where I want to start. Secondly is um, using, in, in social work, we have a phrase, the clinical use of self. So I haven't gone through every marriage that I'm working with a couple or uh, I work a lot with people with cancer. I've never been through cancer myself, but I've been through challenging things. And so what experiences that I have been through is myself and how do I use that clinically to, to cultivate empathy, to bring forward space for people to talk, to listen, to feel compassion and cry with them, to bring in humor and laugh with them, whatever that is. So, so there's a part of, it's not the same experience. I would never claim that being black, I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is to be a woman, but I consider myself a pro-feminist male. Right. And I, and I will just always listen to a woman's voice, and particularly black women's voices. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> because there are those um, intersectional pieces. Right. When my, when my, children, when my children come to me regarding maybe uh, something that they've experienced that has to do with racism, that they feel that they've been impacted or that something was not fair. Um, I, do the, I, I try to do the same thing. First, I just try to listen um, because I can identify with where they are or what it is that they are going through or what it is that they're feeling um, because some of the time I've had some of the same experiences. But I do try to teach them that because you have that experience does not mean it's across the board. To me, it's very important that it is that experience. Let's talk about that experience. Let's see how that experience made you feel. Um, you know, uh, I'm not, you know, however you, you feel about it, I want to acknowledge it. And I, I, and I know that, you know, maybe this is not the time that you can actually even heal from it. Because maybe you are in the mourning of it. You're in the acknowledgement of it. You're in the shock of it. So, so, so I'm here to let you emotionally feel whatever it is that you feel. And hopefully I'm creating a safe space for you to be able to do that. And I, I'm very grateful that you feel comfortable enough even to kind of like come in and, and tell me about it. Because a lot of times just because you're mom or dad, just that word mom and dad can create a barrier. Mm -hmm. You know, we always say we want our kids to be able to come and talk to us, to feel safe. But, but, but sometimes when we start judging them or if we say that's wrong, then we begin to shut them down. So you can't have it both ways. If I want you to come and talk to me, then I really need to create that safe space. I'm, I'm so, I'm so um, gun-ho on creating a safe space for my children to always have that dialogue with me. So I, I listen to them, but I also try to instruct them once the time is right that we, you don't, you don't want to allow that one situation to be the situation that you use that for everyone because 
everybody is different. So just because one white person does something to you does not mean all white people are bad. And so it's important that we look at whatever that situation is, but we don't make that the situation that gives us the reason to hate. Yeah, um, so Silky said in the interview, uh, Frida, you heard her, that um, uh, oppressed people don't know how to support each other. So I was wondering if you agree with that and if there is anything that we can do in order to change that. Mm. Oh, my God. Oh, geez. You know, I believe that you can only give what you have. I can't give you what I, I don't necessarily have to give. Like, if I'm not loving myself... I, I have no love to give. I can give what I think love is. I can give, give what I think it feels like. But until I have really started that process of examining, loving, accepting, non-judgmental of who I am, then I'm able to give you that. Like, I, I can't, you know, if, I, if, if I'm not compassionate with myself, if I don't have, uh, you know, the tools to be accepting of who I am, then I'm definitely going to judge you. And so, yes, oppressed people, even in communities like I'm really leery of the word community because when we, we when we hear community we somehow think that's warm and embracing and wait a minute and like you said earlier I know the pain of rejection from my family and you've been maybe rejected from your family because you were gay so together oh my god but that's not true because if I've been rejected from my family and I've not dealt with it maybe I've not gone to a psychiatrist I've not worked it out that that is not my value of who I am and whatever she said that's her opinion and her opinion is not my reality if I've not really made peace with that or worked with that then what I do is I know how to hurt you mm, right that's yeah I mean that's that is one of the things that I have seen a few times not many times in my life and has always shocked me yes. when I've met somebody who has been through so much and then you see the way they're interacting with you know the waitress in the restaurant yes. or something and you go how can you and then you realize because you have so much anger from what you've experienced mm -hmm. and and I think that that is an incredible challenge to our ability to work with each other uh, and and fix things I, I think that's beautiful and mm -hmm. and sad I was just reading uh, some Martin Luther King's uh, letter from the Birmingham jail and he wrote how the one of the major aspects of nonviolent resistance is a purification process. So people didn't just show up and protest. They got there, they prayed, they negotiated with the powers that be. Then they did a purification, which is to prepare themselves to do the work and to stand and be spit on yeah. and hosed down and beaten without fighting back. So it's not we're do we're not doing a mass purification like as gay people, we're all doing that. We have, we're trying, and we, I guess I'm asking people to think about their own purification in that same way. You know, I've, and I've always said that I could not have marched with Martin Luther King. I'm a Malcolm X girl. You know, right? I, I, because it's very important you know your capability because you mm. will mess things up. Mm. You know, so does that mean that it was more of an expression that, 
uh, it was more of an expression of anger against the system than it was of embrace of, uh, of people's ability to change. That was always what I grew up understanding the difference between Malcolm I, X's I, philosophy I, and... Right. I just know that... I just know for me, you know, for me, I have to know what I can handle and what I can't handle. Because if I go into it thinking that I can handle you know, the water or someone spitting on me. If I go into that feeling that that, that, you know, I, I've done the steps and I can do that and then realize that I can't, mm -hmm. then I will mess up mm -hmm. the, the, the right. goal of what's happening. I tell people all the time, you've got to know your capability. You got to call yourself on your own bullshit mm -hmm. and stop pretending that you can handle a situation when in reality you know you can't because then you mess it up for everybody. I hear you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. So oh, yes. I, I'm very a, passionate. Yeah. Yes, yes. Guys, thank you so much thank for joining so much. us to talk about this. It feels really good for me. Thank you. It's been yeah. great to be here. Same here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. This just in. Yes. <laughs> Some happy news after all, right? I mean, we were literally, as we were recording the podcast just now, the United States Supreme Court made an incredible decision. I'm sure all of you know about it already. This was a decision to say that the 1964 Civil Rights Act not only covers race and gender, but also covers sexual orientation. This means uh, gay men, lesbians, transgender, transgender. people, um, you know, the whole alphabet of LGBTQ and everything else. And I have to say, I love that the Supreme Court keeps coming up with these decisions in June on in Gay Pride Month, but also interestingly and most importantly, right at the time of my husband's and my birthday. Yes, it's such a great birthday present. You know, <laughs> I gotta say, like, <laughs> at a time when everything feels so dark and the president is the shit that he is and, you know, the world feels the way it does, it, it makes me feel so good to see that even people like some of our conservative judges on the Supreme Court say to themselves, no, freedom and equality mean something. They mean something no matter what anybody else is saying. And to Neil Gorsuch, who I generally don't like, thank you, you rock. <laughs> and uh, and let's all just take a moment to celebrate the, the equality and freedom that we've always had in our hearts and now we have by the very black letter of the law. Here, Amazing. Here. Yes, and uh, we want to thank again our guests on this uh, Pride special episode. Thank you guys, first of all, all of our listeners who are supporting us. Uh, on social media and here and please keep listening and we want to thank our guests today Reverend Frida Lenoir, therapist Tom Peer and of course Silky Nutmeg Ganache who doesn't need any more introductions <laughs> um, we, we're going to see you very soon with another greatest hits episode that we're planning for you before our next season so watch out for that and of course if you have any questions or any comments please don't hesitate to uh, let us know either on social media or just send us an email to hello at daddysqr.com. And Alex, thank you for being my husband. Jan, thank you for being mine. 
Love you all. Bye. If you're thinking of growing your family, Dr. Mark Seri, Medical Director of Southern California Reproductive Center, is a great person to talk to. Not only is he a true ally for the gay community, his IVF practice is considered one of the most technologically advanced in the world. Whether you decide to go with a surrogacy agency or not, whether you are planning to have a friend as a surrogate or to find an egg donor, Dr. Surrey will make sure to guide you through the process with utmost care and expertise. Take your first step toward having the family you've been dreaming of and request a consultation with Dr. Surrey today at daddysqr.com slash scrc. Daddy, that's QR.com. <laughs>